Hello and welcome to the New Psychology of Depression, a series of programmes with me, Dr Danny Penman, and Professor Mark Williams of Oxford University. We live in a world filled with material wealth. We have never had so much political and economic freedom. We live longer and healthier lives, and yet anxiety, stress, unhappiness and depression have never been more common. Why is this? Or perhaps more importantly, what can we do to stem the rising tide of these mental health problems? Mark, what exactly is depression? Well, depression is a syndrome. It's a, a combination of symptoms that occur at the same time. So most people know what sadness is. Most people know sometimes how difficult it is to get up out of bed out of the morning and this sort of thing. Depression is different from that. It's a low mood, um, feeling hopeless, feeling very sad and listless, but also it can be lack of energy and enthusiasm for things that you used to actually quite enjoy. And those are the core symptoms of depression. But even then, if you get those for a couple of weeks and they go on and on and on, that's not enough to get you a diagnosis of depression. So there are other symptoms as well. And any combination, four or five of these other symptoms are often considered necessary for a diagnosis of a clinical depression. And they are things like changes in appetite, perhaps even weight loss, uh, or sometimes people eat too much and weight gain. Um, changes in sleep, so that some people don't get to sleep at night, or they can't sleep in the middle of the night, or they wake up very early in the morning. Occasionally, especially with something called seasonal affective disorder, it's sleeping too much and not you know, feeling that you, you, know, you want endless sleep. But generally with depression, it's not sleeping, it's, it's insomnia. Um, and then there are things like feeling guilty, lacking concentration, feeling agitated or very slowed down, um, feeling tired all the time, and even Many people get suicidal ideas, ideas they'd rather be dead, that they're just a burden to their family. Now, what depression is, is these symptoms coming together most days for at least two weeks. Um, in general, however, they go on for months, and that's when you, you'd get a diagnosis of depression, at the point at which these things uh, prevent you from uh, living your life as you want to live. So it, it's, it's what might be called functional impairment. You can't function. And you can't explain it in terms of illness, your know, physical illness. You can't explain it in terms of a recent bereavement. This um, comes and stays, and you don't seem to be able to get rid of it. So how does it interrelate with other problems that we all suffer from, from time to time, such as anxiety, stress, and you know, things like mental exhaustion? Well, they're very closely related, so you very rarely get a depression without having other things like high anxiety at the same time. Depression is often characterised by you know, dwelling on the past a lot, but you hardly ever get that without people also worrying about the future and being anxious about the future. Um, psychiatrists and psychologists usually put anxiety and depression in separate camps, but the new genetic evidence is suggesting they're much more dimensional, they're much more mixed, um, and also the treatments that work for depression tend to work for anxiety as well. So there's quite a lot of evidence that actually to make a too big a separation between anxiety, stress, depression, exhaustion isn't quite what is going on in the world. Things like anger, irritability, uh, road rage, you know, typical explosions that you see, we all see every day. Are they related to depression at all? They can be. I mean, they're, they're more likely to be related to stress because you often get, um, in high chronic stress, you get people showing a lot of anger. 
Um, uh, but also, and it depends on the age group. So for example, in adolescent depression, there can be quite a lot of anger and irritability and hostility, which is how often within that age group, a lot of sadness is expressed. But you couldn't get a diagnosis just from being angry all the time. You'd need some of these other things like weight loss or an appetite change, sleep change and that sort of thing. Depression is increasing worldwide. Is it increasing predominantly in the developed world or is it also increasing in the third world? Well, what we now know is that depression is, is rapidly becoming one of the biggest reasons uh, for people to have basically lose years of their effective life um, through disability. Um, so um, the World Health Organization publishes data um, decade by decade over that and about two decades ago they recognized that depression was becoming a big problem. Well it's now arrived so in the uh, they have a statistic of the years life lost to disability and in high and middle income countries, depression is the top of the list for that. Um, so it's uh, higher than the uh, disability caused by heart disease, for example, uh, cerebrovascular disease, road traffic accidents. And even in low income countries and uh, very low income countries, it's still in the top 10 of uh, years lost to disability. So ac depression actually exacts a bigger toll on society than cancer and heart disease and other things like osteoarthritis? Indeed. In terms of its global uh, impact, of course there's the suicide impact as well. Nearly a million people die uh, prematurely by suicide each year across the world. Um, but also there's the more hidden cost as well as the big cost of things like suicide. People uh, feeling like they can't function, uh, feeling like staying in bed rather than getting up which is not just laziness, this is depression, as it were, that's doing this to them. Uh, it affects the ability to be a breadwinner for your family, the ability to look after your family, um, and uh, that's why it's such a burden right across the globe. Can you give us some figures as to the prevalence of depression, uh, both in the developed world and the de developing world? So in high-income countries, for example, um, Depressive disorders, which is what we've been talking about, account for about 14% of the year's life lost to disability. And putting that in proportion, um, if you look at Alzheimer's and other dementias, uh, that's about 5% of the year's lost to disability. If you look at osteoarthritis, it's 4%. Um, if you look at um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, that's about 3%. So 14% is huge. Compared, compared with that. Then if you look at low and middle income countries, um, then depression is about 10% of that. And the next, um, uh, the next in line for the year's life lost disability are eye problems, what's called refractive errors. And that's about half that, about 4.7%. So again, in terms of the year's life lost disability, it's huge. What um, epidemiologists seem to find wherever they look is about one in 20 of the population um, are depressed at any one time and about 20% of the population at some point will get uh, very depressed and that's a major problem. Every time I hear these figures I'm just completely stunned. What's the fundamental driving force behind the increase in depression? I think there's always been a proportion of the population that has felt uh, depressed. As far as we can go back in history 
you can look in the Psalms, in the Hebrew, uh, the Old Testament, as it were, the Hebrew, and you see people expressing, you know, sadness and depression and anger and irritability and this sort of thing. You go back way into the beginning of something like Buddhism, for example, 500 years BCE, and you have um, people uh, needing to learn to meditate um, uh, to uh, deal with the problems of the mind, the problem, the entanglements of the mind, as it were. So I think it's been around a long time. One of the things, however, that's new uh, is over the last 50 years in the Western world, uh, the age of onset of depression has changed. It's become earlier and earlier and earlier. And that's one of the major discoveries it started to emerge from epidemiology where big surveys started to pick up that people were beginning to report from about people born in the 1950s onwards. When they were assessed towards the end of the 20th century, they started to report that their depression had started a bit younger than we had previously thought. It was previously thought that depression was a bit of a late life problem, um, late 50s, early 60s. And indeed, the evidence that people born in the first part of the 20th century seemed to um, verify that. But decade by decade, from about 1950 or 60 onwards, the age of onset got younger and younger. And so by the uh, 1980s and 90s, people were beginning to get depressed in their 20s. And there's been a striking confirmation of that in the, in the last few years. One of the biggest clinical studies ever conducted was done in America. It was called the STAR-D trial, and it was ST, the beginning of STAR-D, means sequence treatment. So it was a big trial to look at what treatment to provide, uh, one treatment after the other after the other. So they had 4,000 people um, who volunteered to take part. And as part of that trial, they were asking them, when did you first get depressed? And they found that the mean age of onset in this sample was about 26. But actually, the most common age in which people started to get depressed was between 13 and 15 years old. And that is an astonishing uh, new development. Hmm. Is the same true for kind of anxiety and stress and irritability? And uh, We weren't clear about that until about year 2000, where somebody published a big paper in one of the big journals in America. They had traced the anxiety level of children and young people over the 30 years from the early 1950s all the way through to the mid-1980s. And they found exactly the same thing, that it looked as if the anxiety pattern in children and young people had become, that in a sense the whole bell-shaped curve had shifted towards greater anxiety and by about one standard deviation, which means that whole swathes of children and young people who hadn't been anxious in the 1950s, as it were, if they were born in the 1980s, then they were likely to show anxiety, which had been virtually clinical levels 30 or 40 years ago. I think earlier you said that um, what we regard as normal levels of, of anxiety and stress would have been regarded as a clinical level anxiety and stress 50 years ago. Is that true? Did I misunderstand that? Because that's quite an astonishing figure. That's true in anxiety. Yeah. And now that uh, we know the same is true of depression, that is that um, 50 years ago people would, would live out most of their life without getting these crushing depressions. Um, but now that, um, you know, 35, 36% get depressed before the age of 18, um, then there's a whole life ahead of them, which is the biggest challenge, a whole life ahead of them, 
where they might actually get another depression because one of the things we now know is if you've been depressed once, you tend to get depressed again, at least in half, half the cases. And once you've been depressed twice, then the chances go up even further. So does this suggest that depression is really a problem of how we deal with the world, the way we think, rather than a, a chemical imbalance in, in the way our brains are actually working? Well, one of the inferences we can make from these big changes being so rapid and recent is that it can't be genetic changes. It can't be driven by our basic biological makeup. So there must be something else happening and it must be environmental changes that have driven that. I mean, clearly, it could be that people are just recognising depression that was always there, but now they're recognising it more. But the fact that both clinical studies and epidemiological studies show up the same thing um, argues that it's not just that people are recognising it better, because you control for the sort of questions you can ask and check that the questions asked are the same over those decades. Um, but the other thing is that we know that after about 1977, um, you got increases in changing rates of suicide as well, um, especially in young men. Right the way over the Western world, you got increases in the suicide rate, which to some extent mimicked this younger and younger depression hitting. Now that's stabilised over the last few years, but the fact that you get really uh, confirmation from another area that we know is likely to have been affected by this changing pattern of depression, I think, shows that something's going on here. It's very difficult to understand exactly what the causes are. Changing patterns of uh, society, the increase in the gap between rich and poor, the fact that when economies develop rapidly, often there are seen to be some almost unavoidable changes in the, uh, in, in the gaps between rich and poor. We know that in the countries that have the least gaps between rich and poor, then the levels of stress, the levels of trust even within the communities are higher, the levels of hope are higher, and uh, people tend to live longer in those societies. So there are little bits of evidence that people are beginning to put together um, to suggest what the changes might have been. Um, but uh, what we're working on are treatments that, uh, and approaches which can now deal with this depression epidemic. If you had to choose fundamental driving forces behind depression, what would, what would they be? Well, at the individual level, they're the way we think about life. So where we feel we are, as it were, uh, in relation to other people, in relation to our own standards, and the standards that other people set for us. So one of the ways in which society is changing is the way in which it expects us to uh, to do things, the targets it sets for us and so on. And when society sets us targets and says, meet those or else, then the best you can hope for from your work is relief when you've met your targets. In other words, if you could do a good job and feel pleased that you've done a good job because of your work, you know, if you're a heart surgeon and you've saved you know, several lives this week, then that must be a really good sense of worth about what you've done. But what happens if you've got a target to save six lives this week? All you do is when you've saved six lives is think, oh, thank goodness that I've met my targets. You know? So suddenly it, t it turns the possibility of, of uh, uh, satisfaction with a job well done into relief that you haven't made a mistake. So you've turned potentially something really enjoyable about life 
into a, a thing that isn't going to, as it were, uh, give you the motivation. So gradually, that, that can work for a while, you know, but gradually it can eat away, I think, at, at you in, in ways that are a bit pernicious. So how could you, for example, you know, if you were an omnipotent dictator, how could you change society? Or, you know, perhaps if you were running a company, how could you change the culture of that company or of that society to actually promote mental health and well-being? I think it's, well, people talk about work-life balance, don't they? And uh, that's really important. It also to recognise that uh, productivity needs engagement and engagement needs a sense of control, a sense of choices. So as you go down companies, traditionally, you get people having less and less choice about what they do. And if you can find a way to increase the choice, then you naturally increase the creativity. We know that when a company is run on just target lines and so on in this stress, stressful way, that actually people, in order to meet their targets, they feel very stressed, they put in more hours, but they aren't necessarily more productive because they're not seeing the whole picture. And if you want employers to see the whole picture, and if we want us and our family life to see the whole picture, then you have to learn to attend and you have to learn to see the whole picture by reducing stress. And there are things we can do about that. And mindfulness, uh, which is what I've spent uh, much of my life researching over the last 20 years, is one of the answers to that. Does depression inevitably return? Or, you know, is it possible to just have one episode of depression and, you know, that's it for the rest of your life? You get over it, you dust yourself down and carry on with the rest of your life. Is that possible or does it tend to return? Okay, depression can be a one-off um, and so it doesn't, it's not inevitable to re return. So it's, it's a bit of a message of hope. If we said, oh, it's always going to return, then it's a council of despair for many people. Um, uh, on the other hand, if you've been depressed once, you do have a slightly increased threshold and it rather depends why you got depressed. If you got depressed because of a big uh, life event, for example, uh, bereavement, unemployment, separation, um, the sort of uh, uh, reasons that would make any of us low, uh, then so long as you don't have a repeat of those sort of events, then you don't necessarily, not necessarily going to get depressed again. But the problem is that if you get depressed the threshold for you getting depressed again is slightly altered. And if then you get depressed for a second time, what we know is the triggers of a third depression are less. So for example, you might need bereavement or unemployment the first time you get depressed. The second time it might be something slightly less of a stressor, but then the third, fourth time, um, then you may not need a stressor at all. By the time actually you've had three, four, five depression, it may be that you just wake up one morning feeling a bit low and by the end of the day you're feeling very depressed. So the statistics suggest that about 50% of people might have a one-off episode and then it doesn't bother them again. But if they've been depressed twice, the chances they get depressed again are much higher, three times and the rates are about 70 to 80%. And in our studies we find, for example, that if we follow people up for about 12 months uh, without offering any treatment to them, uh, then if they've had three depressions in the past before they've come to see us, then between 60 and 80% of them will get depressed again in those next 12 months. So people who become repeatedly depressed year after year, what proportion of their lives do they actually spend in that depressed state? 
Well, we didn't know the answer to this question until fairly recently. And there's some researchers in the States who have done a long-term follow-up of a study called the NIMH, that's the National Institute for Mental Health. They started a study in 1975. And because they were able to keep in touch with this large number of people that started then, they were able to look at you know, how much time do people actually spend depressed if they've been repeatedly depressed. And the, 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 the figures are staggering. What they found was, and it's just been published in the last couple of years, um, uh, is that people on average spend 32% of their time in episode over the 20-year period. So on average, four months a year are spent uh, in episodes of depression, which, I mean, considering the burden that we talked about earlier, it's an incredible statistic. That's a really disturbing statistic. <laughs> what proportion of people then go on to begin self-harm or even commit suicide? There are changing rates of self-harm and suicidal behaviour, and the definitions vary. So self-harm sometimes means people who um, harm themselves physically, cutting themselves and so on. Um, deliberate self-harm is sometimes broader than that, people that take overdoses and so on. And um, we know that the rates of, uh, of suicide in people who've been seriously depressed are elevated compared with the general population. Now, about 1% of the population die by suicide anyway. Um, uh, if you've been depressed in the past, that's likely to be higher, about uh, 4 or 5%. If you've been depressed and been an inpatient at some point uh, in your life and been hospitalised for depression, it can be as high as 10 to 15%. So uh, 1 in 6, 1 in 7 people die by suicide if they've been uh, um, an in, inpatient and hospitalised for depression. But of course it's not inevitable. Most people don't die um, uh, in, in this way. Um, but it's always a tragedy when it when it happens for the for the family left behind and for the for the friends and colleagues of the person. Is suicide always linked with depression? It's the most closely linked problem. So that even I mean you get elevated risk of suicide in other mental health problems like schizophrenia, for example, or bipolar disorder. But it's the depressive aspect of schizophrenia. Um, so many people. Can, um, can survive, as it were, having serious mental health problems in an amazingly courageous way. But depression takes away that hope. And it's when hopelessness comes, which tends to come with depression, that actually people become at greater risk of suicide. Whatever the condition it is, it's the, it's the occurrence of depression that accounts for, for that. Do people tend to kill themselves as they come out of a depression rather than when they actually have the kind of hopelessness and the lack of energy when they're in the teeth of a depression? This, there's a, quite a lot of clinical evidence for that. It's never been proven by research. It's a very difficult thing to, to, uh, to prove, but many people have said that they thought that the person was actually feeling happier now. And the natural inference is exactly as you suggest, that people when they're very, very depressed actually have very little energy and that it's when the energy starts to come back but the mood has not yet improved that is a very dangerous time. It's also true to say that some of the big studies that uh, Lewis Appleby and others have done in the United Kingdom have found that the most vulnerable time is a time just after 
um, a discharge from hospital, for example, um, after uh, a change in medication, which reflected, very often reflected the fact that their physician thought they were feeling better. So that's also um, uh, indications that when people are on the mend, and uh, people around them think they can stand on their own two feet, that, that almost that transition is a very difficult time for people. You were mentioning about the close links between depression and suicide and asking about that, and somebody's calculated actually how much of the suicide risk in the world could be eliminated if we could eliminate depression, and it turns out to be about 80% because of the very close association. People don't tend to be suicidal outside an episode of depression. Um, depression is the thing that is the, as it were, the final common pathway, depression and hopelessness. And one of the interesting things that's emerged in the last few years is that when you get repeated depressions, um, you can get depressed again and again, but different symptoms can be there each time, so that always those core symptoms seem to be there, like low mood and lack of interest. But the other things like weight loss, sleep loss, guilt, they may or may not be there. But our research uh, in Oxford has found that of all the symptoms uh, that recur, when depression recurs, suicidal feelings are the most recurrent. Um, and of course that's important clinically to realise because it means that often doctors will ask somebody who's depressed whether they feel suicidal. Well that's an important question to ask, but it's more important to ask, did you feel suicidal when you were last depressed? Because if people felt suicidal at their worst ever time, then there's some chances that during this episode, at some point, they're going to feel suicidal. So clinically it's important and research-wise it's important to get to the bottom of what are the characteristics of recurrence so we can begin to, uh, begin to help. So what exactly does a full-blown depression feel like? It's a combination of experiences, of uh, distortions you might say in the way you think, the way you feel, the body and your impulses. So if you take each in turn, your thoughts are dominated by ideas of helplessness, rejection, being a failure, not being good enough, um, not being worth your space in the world. You feel like the lowest of the low um, and that nobody wants you, nobody likes you um, and that even if they do like you, that's because they haven't found out the truth about you, you're just a fraud, and as soon as they find out what you're really like, they'll reject you. So your, your thoughts are dominated by that. That becomes a habit, so that although many of us might think like that for, you know, one, once or twice a day, or a week, or a month, uh, in depression, it's just like comes all the time. I mean, many of us know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night, for example, and not be able to get back to sleep, and our thoughts go round and round and round. We just ruminate and brood. Well, depression is like that sort of middle of the night thinking, but it happens during the day as well. Secondly, your feelings get bombarded. There's feelings of sadness, of hopelessness, of worthlessness, and they're very closely tied in with your thoughts. If you can imagine somebody standing behind you all day saying how useless you were, uh, then sooner or later you'd feel sad, irritable, run down, exhausted and a miserable failure. And that's the way in which the feelings reflect uh, those thoughts. It's not just a mental thing. Your body uh, slows down, uh, you lack energy, um, you, uh, y your body fails to 
work in an efficient way so you don't sleep well, you don't eat well, and that this itself feeds back into your sense of fatigue and slowness, lack of energy, either being in some cases very agitated, in some cases being very, very slowed down. And, and um, so that's the way the body, I mean, if you look at the way people walk when they're depressed, for example, their gait is very different. Um, not as it were walking upright, walking slouched, uh, going from side to side instead of actually more steady on their feet. Um, and lastly, your behavior is affected. Um, you don't, either you feel like you, uh, you feel suicidal, but also you feel like withdrawing uh, from the world. And that sense of withdrawal, of not wanting to see things. Now, once again, most of us have had times in our life when the phone rang and we said, oh, no, do I have to answer that? Um, or uh, when we didn't want to get up in the morning and anybody could have seen we were you know, quite sort of withdrawn. But that goes on relentlessly. It, it, it feels like it goes on relentlessly in depression. And when you put these together, the thoughts, the feelings, these body changes and your impulses to act or your behavioral tendencies to withdraw, um, then that is what drags you down. It's, it's not surprising then that people feel the burden and can't function uh, when they've got all of this going on in their life. So is there any one thing that drives people or tips people over the edge from normal run-of-the-mill sadnesses or periods of rumination or reflection into a period of full-blooded depression? There are, and actually I'd like to tackle that in greater detail in later episodes because it's exactly what tips people into other episodes that the research is most exciting over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And out of that comes the interest in mindfulness research. So that's something that I think we'll be able to go into detail in, in future episodes. So that implies it is possible to stop a depression from, uh, or rather, normal feelings of unhappiness that we all experience from day to day. It's possible to stop that and prevent it from tipping over the edge into, into a clinical depression. That's the most exciting development in the last 20 years. And the way in which mindfulness is able to help people to notice when the tipping point is coming and allow you to deal with what you've got then without going down into the depths is, I think, one of the major things. And that must have huge clinical relevance. It's got huge clinical relevance because if we could find, and I'll describe that in, 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 the, in the later episode, if we can find that this is actually as useful as antidepressants or as other treatments, um, it's, it's, it's a, of global significance because it doesn't depend on uh, medications which in some contexts are just too expensive for people to, to purchase. Thanks very much for that, Mark. In this episode, we were talking about the new psychology of depression and what exactly depression is. And in the next episode, we'll be talking about the major treatments for depression and how they've changed over the last century or so. For further information about the issues raised in this programme, you can read The Mindful Way Through Depression by Professor Mark Williams and his co-workers. Or you could read our book, Mindfulness, Finding Peace in a Frantic World by Mark Williams and me, Danny Penman, or you could visit our website, franticworld.com. If you'd like to support further research in this area, you could visit oxfordmindfulness.org, that's all one word, and follow the links to the development campaign.